Our reading for this morning is from Genesis 17, verses 1 through 5. Hear God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brooke, and good morning. Welcome on this Father's Day weekend. Um, it's fun to start our time together with uh, kids from VBS singing, dancing their hearts out. It was a fun, it was a really fun week, um, but I sort of share some of Mary Kay's uh, emotions there. It's been a long uh, week for many of us, many of you are here. Thanks for serving. I echo Katie's sentiments too. Thanks for spending the time here, and I'm sure, like me, you learned as much as they do. And that's just one of the wonderful things about working with our children and one of God's gracious gifts as he teach us, teaches us about his kingdom through the littlest among us. So it's fun to do this um, together. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the joy of opening God's word with you this morning. But like we always do, um, let's pause. We need God's help both in the speaking. I need his help. Uh, you need his help in the hearing of his word, so we want to do this together. And I want to pray, too, um, for, for, you know, it's Father's Day. It's one of those days on the calendar that just is such a mixed bag for so many of us. There's so many emotions wrapped up with a day like this. And so I want to spend a little time in prayer on that, too. So if you would, bow your head and pray with me. Father, it is, it's good that we can come to you and call you Father to know your perfect love for us that, that will never fail. Our, our experiences of fatherhood are so varied in this room. Some of us have known your love through our dads. We're grateful for that. Others of us have only known failure and disappointment. Help us this morning especially know your love, no matter how, how well our earthly dads have loved us. Some of us are sad this morning for, for other reasons. I ask that you would be close to those whose sense of loss is heightened on a day like this, to those whose dads have passed away or who, who never knew their father, to those whose desire to be a father is yet unfulfilled, to those who feel like they've blown it as a dad themselves. You have grace that is sufficient for all of it. So, God, we thank you that we can come to you with any sorrow, with every joy, wherever we find ourselves on this day, we ask that you would meet us right there. And now as we open your word together, I pray that you would shape us into the kinds of people who love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, who love our neighbors as we love ourselves. I want to say your words from Ephesians 3 after you. They'd be true of us today, even in this time of speaking and hearing your word. I pray that from your glorious, unlimited resources, that you would empower us with strength through your spirit. 
that Christ would make his home in our hearts as we trust in him, that our roots would grow down into your love and that would keep us strong, and that we have the power to understand, to, to really know, as all your people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep your love is for us. May we experience the love of Jesus, though it is too great to fully understand. Then we will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from you. I pray that you would do that this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, it's been a fun week uh, here at the church, and you got, to, you got a little taste of it this morning as our kids danced their little hearts out uh, in front of us. And it was really my kind of highlight of my favorite part. Uh, and one of the greatest joys for me was that my four-year-old, Evie, um, she was in my, my little group. I got the four- and five-year-olds uh, in dance class, she called it. Uh, it, was, it was the highlight of my night, in case you were wondering what my personal highlights of VBS were. Because uh, I just couldn't stop watching her. She's so into, like, each and every move. You know, it's just really intense, loved every moment of it. I watched the other kids, of course, because they were in my group, and they were wonderful, but not like I watched Evie, right, with so much joy and pride in my heart. And without fail, at some point in the middle of the night, kind of every night, we do these songs. This is the real highlight moments of my week. Each night, I'd catch her glance over at me, whether over her shoulder, sort of turn around completely, just to make sure I was watching. I mean, I've heard it a million times, right? As a dad, watch this, daddy. Like, watch me. Did you see that? Did you see what I just did? Eager to be seen. Performing. Impressing. Not because she knows she's got the moves, so she's pretty good. I mean, I'm a little biased. Not because she knows she's skilled, but because she knows she's loved. She, she danced this week like I was the only audience she could ever want. And if we're honest, we're all living that way, or at least we want, we want to live that way, with the right audience to watch us, who loves us and knows us despite how well we get the moves. Whether we nail it or not, we want to live that way. And we're all living that way. The question is, do we have the right audience or not? Or we, have, we have audiences at home, at school, or work, with our friends, or family, even complete strangers. Often we're, we're living our lives in front of an audience of our own choosing. And the question is, are we getting that audience right? I know it's, I mean, this is true for me, is my audience choices often aren't as innocent as Evie's. Even as I prepared for this morning, even now, right now, I struggle with caring more about your opinion of me than anyone else's. And my hunch is you live a pretty similar kind of life. Glancing around, hoping Others are taking notice. Some of us struggle with that more than others, but it's there for all of us. And the question 
that was just turning around in me this week, especially as I was preparing on, the, on a, you know, a short time, it was a full week, the question that just kept resonating for me is, whose attention am I looking for? What audience am I living my life in front of? It's an important question because in a real sense, in a very real sense, the audience you're living for shapes your life, directs it, guides it, it determines it. Maybe a strong word, but that's true. And I don't think you, this is true just when we're kids. No matter your age or stage of life, I mean, if, you're, if your parents are that audience, kids and adults alike in this room, you'll direct all your energy at making them happy or earning their approval in hopes that they like you or are proud of you. Or if it's your friends, you'll eventually conform to sort of their vision, version of the good Life. If it's your colleagues or a boss, cohorts in your marketplace industry, you'll find your value. You'll place your value, your worth in your work to the point of overwork or underwork. Right? Most of us have an audience problem or several. Now, Oz Guinness, he's an author and a social critic. He's He's a friend of Christ's community. He's been here in the past. He'll be back here in the fall. I think he's right on when he says this. He says, most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. So who is your audience this morning? Shapes your life. I think few decisions, sort of who you choose to live your life for, are as formative or even as subtle as our audience decisions. Now, if you're a Christian, you stand in a long line of people who have, who have given their lives across generations around the globe who are convinced that the God of the Bible is the only audience that's worth living for. Sacrificing comfort. Denying power and status, loving our enemies, caring for the sick and the poor, giving their lives, their very lives away behind the scenes because they were convinced that God's approval is the only thing that counts in the end. And the question is why? Why is the God of the Bible the best audience to live for? And that's our guiding question for the morning most of you probably were sitting there thinking, oh, he's going to say God is, should be our audience. So I'm just going to say it right up front. He is the best audience. He is the one we should live our lives for. The question is why? Why is he the one that's worthy, alone, worthy of our, our attention or for us to be seeking his attention alone? What is it about God that makes him the best audience? We're going to look at Genesis chapter 17. We're going to hone in on the first five verses there. So we're going to see the answer to this question sort of emerge. I'm going to build a case for it. 
as we go. But early on in the story of redemption, God invites us to know why he really is the best audience for us. But as you're turning there to Genesis 17, I want to do a quick recap. Because last time I was up here, we were back in Genesis 12. Abram, he's in his 70s, and God calls him to leave behind everything he knows. Right? Go to this land. I'm going to tell you about it later. Leave your family. Leave the inheritance. Leave it all. Everything you know, leave it behind. Because I I have these promises for you that through your family, everything, everyone on earth is going to experience blessing. That's the promise. It's the promise that's unfolding across the rest of this book, throughout Genesis, and really the the whole of the Bible. These promises that through this family... And one of his descendants, Jesus himself, through his family, the whole world will experience blessing. But there's just the one thing about the plan is it depends on kids having children, which Abram and Sarai do not have. They cannot have kids at this point, at least not in their own strength, not at this point in the story. So God tells Abram that this huge promise is actually going to be based all on him. God's going to do it. Genesis 15 makes a covenant with Abram and his family and says, here's my end of the deal, my promises. If I don't hold those up, you know, he passes sort of this weird story of these animals that are cut up, he passes through them, says, if if I don't hold up my end of the deal, may this happen to me. And then it's Abram's turn. But instead of Abram going down, God does it again. (laughs) Says, and if you don't hold up your end of the deal, may this happen to me. Chapter 15, God says, I would rather die than break a promise. And in fact, that's, ex- that's exactly what he does in the end of the story. He dies before breaking his promises to his people. So God establishes this new relationship called a covenant with Abram. And by extension, us, all of humanity, are, have entered into this new relationship. But it's another 10 years before the story moves forward. And that was last week. Abram, at 86, he and Sarai sort of decide to take things into their own hands. They have a child with Hagar. It's just failure moment of faith as we sort of read it back through Galatians. And today's passage takes place 13 years after that. So chapter 16 closes, and now it's 13, you know, sort of see the screen Meanwhile, 13 years later, that's where we are. With 13 years of silence for Abram, wondering, is God going to back out? What's happening? What's going on with this plan? So we come to verse 1. Sort of imagine all that context as the backdrop for this moment. It says, when Abram was 99, the Lord appeared to him. And said to him, I am God Almighty. After all this time of waiting and wondering, God comes back onto the scene. He appears to Abram, which again, I've said a couple times. Like it's easy to sort of read through that real quickly. This is pretty incredible. Like God appears, he's right in front of him. And the way that he decides to break back onto the scene is he says, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. It's Hebrew name. It's used 50 times for God in the Old Testament. Highlights his strength, his power. 
Some of you now have Amy Grant stuck in your head. Sorry about that. Welcome to my week. Some combination of VBS songs and Amy Grant running through my head. It's been a, I don't really know what to do with that. But El Shaddai, he, he names himself around his power and strength. He says, I am the strong God. Back on the scene 13 years later, I'm the strong God. The God that made everything, that breathed with words everything into existence. Go all the way back to Genesis 1. His power is on display. We were in Seattle a couple weeks ago on vacation. We drove out to a, a spot called Snoqualmie Falls. So Seattle is really wonderful. I mean, it's this like beautiful city, and you can drive 30 minutes, and you're in the mountains. And looking at, at waterfalls, and I was struck in that moment. I mean, you can't, you can't help it when you're sort of in, in the middle of natural beauty to be reminded of the power of God. He is the strong God. He made that. He breathed creation into existence. He also pronounces the curse when we rebel. He brings the flood and judgment. He dismantles Babel. He is the strong God. Names, names, as it turns out, are important in the Old Testament. We're going to see that a little bit more even in this story. And here God identifies himself around his strength. The all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipotent God right in front of Abram after 13 years of silence. Not absence. God's not been gone. He's been watching even. An audience for Abram. And as we consider this question about God as the audience for our life, what makes him the best audience for us to live? Like I said, I think that's true. I want to build the case. Is this, the, is this why? Is it his power that makes him the best? Like living your life in front of the queen all the time or in front of the president, right? Or someone else with incredible influence. Is that what makes an audience a good one? Someone with power. Is that what will lead to the good life? Power, it's a tricky thing. It can be used for good, incredible good. It can also be abused, distorted, used to strong arm or oppress. I don't have to make that case strongly. Some of you hear that God has power, and it doesn't help you all that much. Because you know people with power, and they're losers. You'd never devote, you never devote your life to living in front of them. Power alone doesn't make for a good audience. It's got to be leveraged for good. It's going to mean anything. So there's, I want to keep going. Thankfully, there's more in this text. Let's keep reading. In verse 1, Abram's 99. He's addressed by God as the, the almighty God. And then God says this, this command, sort of two phrases, one command. He says, walk before me and be blameless. I want to take those one phrase at a time, then we'll put them together. First, walk before me. Most translations say that. The NIV adds faithfully in general. That's the, that's the translation. The Hebrew is literally walk before my face. You know, in your comings and goings, Abram, live in my presence. That's what the CSB, the, the Christian Standard Bible, is my favorite translation of this. I think it captures the idea Live in my presence. All of your comings and goings should be before me, before my sight, in my face. 
what Adam did all the way back in the garden. Before sin and shame and hiding enter the picture, Adam walked with God. It's the way that, that Noah is described, how Enoch lived his life. They walked with God. Hagar, back in chapter 16, get another sort of naming moment. She says of God, you are the, the one who sees. Highlighting the sight, the, the watchfulness of God. So God's command to Abram here is live your life aware of that. Walk in my presence. Live as though I'm always watching. It's right here where this sort of audience theme that I've picked up on for this morning, it emerges so prominently, this command to Abram to live as though I'm always watching. Which when you say it like that, it sounds a little creepy, or it could, like he's watching when he shouldn't be, some sort of invasion of privacy, or, or maybe you hear it like he's expecting you to perform, to always be on. I'm watching like a boss looking over your shoulder, maybe even hoping that you'll blow it. I think some of us think of our spiritual lives in, in those two categories, as if the way I live my life is my own business, thanks, or as if I've got to always be on, I've got to always be performing, I've got to measure up. At, at any moment, he's going to come in and be a critic. I think we view our lives, our spiritual lives, that way, but I, th- I think there's a different picture in view here. It's more like me with Evie. Watching her every move, not as a critic. That'd be terrible. But as a father. That my watchfulness is actually, it's actually an invitation to intimacy, to closeness. Dad, watch what I'm doing because I want you to know me. I want you to see me. I want to be seen and known. That's the picture. It's not an inva- some sort of invasion of, of privacy. It's an invitation to intimacy. God's not a constant critic. He wants to see you, to know you. And so, to our question, is the God of the Bible the best audience because he's always there, always watching, always present? I think that's part of it. But there's more. It's actually a second half to this command that I want to draw out the second phrase. When Abram was 99, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. Live in my, in my presence and be blameless. Now, what comes to mind when you hear that word? Blamelessness. For me, it's perfection right away. Like living a good life most of the time, maybe not screwing up in big ways as the lowest bar. Or integrity, character, those are some words that may come to mind and they're close. Doing the right thing when no one is watching. Does that sound right, how you might define blamelessness? Because if that's it, if that's the case, then God suddenly seems like a terrible audience with impossible standards. Like, I might as well just go back to living for my friends and family and strangers. 
If the command is live in my presence and don't ever mess up, walk before me and get it right. Get all the moves. I want to see them the first time. If that's the command, it's, it's terrible. And listen, Abram, he has a, a pretty dicey track record already. Sure, he believed God, and that's been counted to him as righteousness. He has a right standing before God. He went out on some really shaky limbs for God in faith, but he also has some major moral failures. And we should never read the patriarchs or the characters of Scripture as, as total role models for us. We'll, we'll kind of miss it if we do that. Abram is not the model of, of moral perfection. That's not the picture here. So what does God mean when he says blameless? Be blameless. That's the Hebrew word tome. If you've been here, if you've taken razors, you've probably heard that word. It's sort of kind of part of our DNA as a church. It does not mean moral perfection, but rather has this idea of wholeness, seamlessness, completeness, the, the integrated life. Everything kind of fits together. We tend to think about integrity as doing the right things in terms of doing. But tome is actually, it's more about being than doing. It's more about who you are. Or maybe, rather, it's more about becoming than, and, than being. Becoming the kind of person who does the right things. That's the idea of this word. God is saying, live in my presence, walk before my face, and your life will become integrated, will be whole. Tome. Make me your audience, and I will, I will make you complete. Because in a, in a real sense, if you're always living your life for one audience, walking before him, this audience in particular, your life becomes integrated. There's not a work Andrew over here, and then I can come over here and be dad, husband Andrew, and then, oh, but I've got, I've got to be pastor I've got to be Pastor Andrew, so I've got to look this certain way. And then I'm neighbor Andrew. No, Tome is I I should be the same Andrew everywhere because God is the same God everywhere. He is the one singular audience for which I'm living my life. No duplicity, no hypocrisy, no fragmentation. This wholeness, seamlessness, integrity. That leads to a a different kind of future, a new destiny, if you will. Tim mentioned it last week. Abram gets a new name from God. It's here on the heels of this covenant, God's invitation to a whole life in his presence, he's given a new name. Now, in the ancient Near East, names, they're not just a moniker, moniker to pick someone out of a crowd to sort of set you apart. They had meaning, even sort of determinative meaning, especially when God hands them out. And here, after this incredible invitation to intimacy with God, Abram is renamed. Abram has this meaning of exalted father. It points back to his, to, back to his ancestry. But here, God gives him a new name, Abraham, which is future-oriented. 
doesn't point back to the past, points to a new future. The name Abraham emphasizes who he will become, these promises that God's going to work out in and through him as he lives in his presence. He'll become the the father of many nations. He'll become fruitful just as he was designed to be, just as all of us were designed to be. His offspring will exercise dominion as kings and queens over God's world. All of this when Abraham accepts God's invitation to intimacy to walk before him. So I want to put all that together. The most compelling reason why the God of the Bible is the best audience. If the audience you choose shapes the life you live, why God? Here's why. Only the God of the Bible can make you whole. Only the God of the Bible has the power to make you whole. This is his invitation to Abraham and to you. Intimacy with him that produces integrity. If we're living before him as our audience of one, we can become whole, all that he intended us to be. Now the question is, how? How do we do that? Because I don't know about you. This is a, this is a struggle for me. I mean, as I, as I said today already, and as I say often, like right here, right now, what I'm doing right now is a struggle for me to live with God as the only audience, the only one that I'm, whose approval I care about. So how, how do we do this? And I just want to leave us with one practical handle to leave, some point of application for this morning. It's this, choose obscurity over popularity. Choose obscurity. Choose it. Often we don't choose to be obscure, unnoticed. Choose it over popularity. Give the greatest amount of your time and attention and energy to who you are where only God can see. When we tend to reverse this, (laughs) we spend the majority of our energy on who we are when people can see us, whether that's a resume or a a profile. We've got kind of this whole digital life now that you've got to maintain so that other people can look at you and, and think that you are something. We spend so much energy on the parts of our lives that others can see. But the hinge in this passage In verse 3, it's a very different context than our our kind of very visible lives. God appears to Abram. It's just he and God. And Abraham falls on his face before him in humility and obscurity. There's no one around. There's no audience for this. No crowd, no hype. He bows with his face to the ground. I mean, I rarely even kneel in prayer anymore, but Abram humbles himself before God. It's humility in the most obscure of moments, which is precisely where God does his best work in making us into the kinds of people who do the right kinds of things. Intimacy with God where no one else can see that produces integrity in us. Now, one of my 
One of the most formative moments for me as a pastor, and maybe probably just as a Christian, was during my years of seminary in Chicago, but it wasn't in the classroom. It wasn't in the library. It was actually in the kitchen of our church where we attended. We were at a small groups training, kind of like what we have here sometimes with a dinner. Uh, it's a whole thing. Afterwards, we were cleaning it up, taking some stuff. I think some stuff that had to be washed, taking it back to the kitchen. And the kitchen there sort of snaked way back into the corner where the, the, the sink was to wash stuff was out of the way. And I went back there with a handful of dishes, and at the sink was the senior pastor of this multi-site Chicago church, thousands of people. He wasn't part of the training. He probably came in the back door, but he was standing there. I mean, to my surprise, standing there doing all the dishes. And he, he was actually a little disappointed to see me because I saw him. Like he was trying to find a, an obscure moment to serve his people where only God would know. I mean, I, I actually can't think of a more formative moment during my years of seminary. That was, and that was free. That was a free moment. I didn't pay for that. A more formative moment for me than to see my pastor in obscurity. Those are, the, that's the, those are the places where God does his best work, where he makes us whole. Our, our senior pastor, Tom Nelson, he often says this, that integrity is forged in obscurity and refined in visibility. We often want to be good people in the spotlight first, but where we need to go is to the place where no one else sees us. That's why Jesus makes such a big deal about these deeds done in secret. Praying in secret, fasting in secret, giving in secret. These reminded, Jesus reminds us that God is the one watching and is going to make you whole in these moments. You will not be made whole with the approval of others. God cares far more about the heart than anything others can see or hear. It's on that hidden stage, the hidden stage of the heart where God is shaping us the most. It's actually fascinating, though, just a little bit later in this chapter, the sign of the covenant that is given to God's people is circumcision, this hidden sign revealed only in the most sort of intimate of moments. The sign itself of our relationship to God is this hidden sign. And if, if we focus on popularity or what others think of us, you will be enslaved to a thousand opinions, always worried about feedback, spending time on these different versions of yourself to the fragmented audiences of your life. So I want to ask this, where are you choosing popularity over obscurity? Where in your life are you trying to impress others rather than humbly seek his face? Where is your life, where are your desires being shaped by a different audience other than the audience of one? 
God Almighty himself, the one who can make you whole. I mean, as a, again, as a moment of confession, this was hard for me to square with this morning as I realized I probably spent more time wordsmithing than I have in deep prayer that God would move. I have a hunch you guys are there with me at certain points. We need to be spending our time in these obscure moments. We often talk about them as the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting, scripture, memory, giving in secret. There are ways that we can put ourselves in obscurity so that God can do work in us. And he invites us to himself for that very work. I mean, we, we've got a yoke hanging on the wall out here in the lobby. It's a very dear and important part of our life as a church because we believe that Jesus himself in power himself has actually invited us to, he says, come to me, all you who are tired, weary, burdened with the requirements of religiosity, come to me and I will give you rest as you train with me eyeball to eyeball in my yoke. It's one of the most intimate invitations in scripture. And he offers it to all of us. In the same way that Abram is offered to walk before God and be made whole, we are invited to the same God, Jesus himself, this great invitation to bring our burdens to him and find wholeness and rest. With the one who, whose own life was torn apart on the cross, humiliated, mocked, the opposite of popularity, Jesus himself came in obscurity and died a humiliating death, ripped apart so that we could be made whole in him, put back together the way we were meant to be. The audience you choose shapes the life you live, and only this God can, can make you whole. Would you receive his invitation, choose obscurity, and be made whole in his son? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the invitation, the command, really, to Abram, to live in your presence and be blameless, to find wholeness with you in this new kind of relationship that you formed with him, this covenant relationship is extended to us in Jesus, the one in whom all, all the promises are fulfilled. He says, come to me, all you who are tired, I'll give you rest. We know that you by the power of your spirit, by the blood shed at the cross of Jesus Christ can make us whole. Forgive us for living our lives for anyone other than you. And help us, God, help us to live before you as our only audience, the only one whose opinion we care about. Even as we sing now, as we go to the table in a moment, as we leave from here, and go to whatever it is you have for us this week. God, we pray that you would do that work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.